Good evening and welcome to the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. My name is Michael Willis, I'm a fellow here at the Middle East Centre and it's my great pleasure to introduce you to the sixth in our weekly series of Friday seminars looking this term at the theme of dictatorship in the modern Middle East. And I'm very pleased to welcome this evening one of my colleagues, one of the other fellows here at the Middle East Centre, Professor Walter Armbrust. Walter is a social anthropologist working particularly on Egypt, and tonight he will be speaking on the, the theme of Egypt. And he'll be building on his book that came out last year, which is entitled Martyrs and Tricksters, an ethnography of the Egyptian revolution. This was a book that was built on two years uh, living in Cairo um, directly after the Egyptian revolution, carrying out research on the revolution. And we're very, very lucky and pleased that Walter is joining us tonight to build off of that and build in some of his observations of the revolution to look at what has happened in Egypt since then. And we've been building on that and returning to this theme speaking under the title of, I knew I was going to have trouble with this, Apocalypto, Trickster Politics in the Age of Pandemic. Walter. Okay, thank you, Michael. Uh, it's a pleasure to be participating in our own seminar. When the fellows of the Middle East Center began discussing plans for our Friday seminar this term, it, it was back when we were still in lockdown, and my suggestion was that our theme should be crisis. COVID had plunged us into one, and it seemed pretty obvious that we would still be in one in the fall. So crisis as our main theme seemed topical. Unfortunately, I was misunderstood as having suggested that we do an entire term's worth of lectures on the COVID crisis. That would indeed have been tedious. And it wasn't what I had in mind, though I did think that it would have been a shame to work steadily through a pandemic and say nothing about it. But while I think there certainly are many implications to this particular pandemic-driven crisis, the real point was that having just published a book on a revolution, it's called Martyrs and Tricksters, an Ethnography of the Egyptian Revolution, uh, I was thinking about links between crisis and politics. It's hopefully easy for listeners to see the point. A revolution is a form of political crisis, and the coup that ended the revolution instituted a reconstituted authoritarianism, or arguably a new form of authoritarianism. There's quite a bit more that one could say about crisis and authoritarianism. Some listeners may have read my abstract and noticed the quote from Milton Friedman, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. The rest of Friedman's passage from a book titled Capitalism and Freedom extols the fluidity created by crises as an opportunity for the politically impossible to become politically inevitable. For him, that meant the prioritization of economic freedom above any other formulation of freedom. In the actual world, as opposed to Friedman's capitalist utopia, the elevation of economic freedom into a sacred principle made it possible for states to suppress politics in the interests of allowing the supposedly superior logic of the market to work unimpeded. There are other ways to formulate the relation of crisis to politics, such as the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben's state of exception, which focuses on the institution of a legal civil war that empowers states to make unaccountable decisions on which citizens should live and which ones are expendable. Agamben is by no means the only scholar who pursues such ideas. The political theorist Achille Mbembe, for example, makes similar observations in a work titled Necropolitics, 
Mbembe finds the state of exception logic to be salient, not just in the states we commonly recognize as dictatorships, but also in states that are formerly liberal democracies, such as the United States using the 9-11 attack to suspend the rule of law for certain categories of people, categories that are inevitably as elastic as the state wants them to be. Listeners who are familiar with Egypt will probably be thinking about the emergency law of 1958, which set the legal parameters for a state of emergency, which was declared during the June War with Israel in 1967. And then it was lifted briefly in 1980, reimposed by Mubarak in 1981, and remained in force until the January 25th revolution in 2011, only to be reimposed by Abdel Fattah Sisi in 2013. States of emergency have underpinned authoritarian rule also in Algeria for 19 years prior to 2011, and in Syria since the Ba'ath Party came to power in 1963. I note that in this seminar, our keynote lecture, as it were, is Aswani's book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. Aswani writes about the institutionalization of dictatorship, how citizens are habituated to it, and how they ultimately collude with it and consent to it. For me, the dictatorship syndrome has a rather exceptionalist tone. It's full of lines such as, the discussion of dictatorship in the United States and Western Europe has acquired an exotic dimension, as Western Europe has rarely known dictatorship since the Second World War. Or in another line, he says, citizens of Western democracies whose basic needs are satisfied and who enjoy the protection of the law look on with shock and confusion at the tens of thousands of illegal mig migrants who leave their homelands. In other words, for El Aswani, dictatorship is something that plagues the Middle East and other parts of the world, not an issue, or at least no longer an issue for the West. I understand that El Aswani has written this book as a kind of autocritique a criticism of his own society. He prominently quotes from Taufiq Lakim's Audit Luai, The Return of Consciousness, a searing autocritique of Egyptian society during the Nasser era, published in the 1970s after Nasser's death. Autocritique is a good thing, and El Aswani deserves credit for it. The work does, however, have a different resonance when it's translated and presented in English. Contrasting Egypt and the Arab world with the West in favor of the latter is misleading at best if it implies that European and American liberal democracies have to be a kind of gold standard to which the Arab world should aspire. So in the same spirit of autocritique, I want to suggest two modifications to El Aswani's vision of a dictatorship syndrome. The first is that dictatorship is one possible expression of a larger political formation, namely authoritarianism. Authoritarian regimes often have parliaments and elections that are essentially for show or are nullified by emergency laws. Egypt, a highly repressive dictatorship, is one such country. Political scientists have various terms for a range of phenomena connected to authoritarian strategies for regime survival. Upgraded authoritarianism, for example, or durable authoritarianism. These terms tend to be used to explain how regimes in the Arab world have adapted to pressures of globalization or to European and American pressures to democratize. But at the same time, not only have Europe and the United States frequently given material support and political cover for authoritarian regimes, contrary to their own publicly professed democratization agendas, 
But it would also be astonishingly short-sighted to ignore the growing strength of an authoritarian impulse everywhere in the world, very much including Europe and the United States. It would be folly to deny the authoritarian impulse in the Republican Party in the United States or in the dominant far-right politics of Poland or Hungary or indeed the Brexit-era conservative party in this country. The authoritarian impulse in these countries has not necessarily resulted in durable or irreversible authoritarianism in all cases, but anyone who can't see the potential for it in all of these cases simply hasn't been paying attention. So in the interest of putting all of these emergent, if not necessarily consolidated authoritarianisms on the same footing, the second modification I want to make to Elaswani's vision is to put crisis at the center of the discussion and not the institutionalization of a dictatorship habitus as he's done in the dictatorship syndrome. There are two kinds of crisis. One is event-driven at a variety of scales, revolutions and civil wars, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, droughts, pandemics, economic collapse, ranging from the level of the nation state to the entire globe. All of them can make sedimented social, political, and economic arrangements suddenly become fluid. The other kind of crisis is structured, not necessarily structured deliberately, but nonetheless constant and durable. To talk about the structuring of crisis may sound paradoxical, since the very word crisis tends to conjure a sense of suddenness and unexpectedness. And I'll explain what I mean by this shortly. My approach to crisis stems from having written a book about the January 25th revolution in Egypt, Martyrs and Tricksters, which I've already mentioned, and so is Michael. A revolution is a political crisis with social and economic implications, and it's also the starting point of a transition. The problem is that it usually turns out to be a transition to something other than what the people who initiated the revolutionary event envisioned. The study of transitions is a branch of political science sometimes called transitology. It's concerned mainly with transitions from authoritarianism to democracy. Sociology and, and policy studies write about transitions in a slightly more expansive framework, but they focus still largely on institutions. In my book, I drew inspiration from anthropological understandings of transitions, which are rather broader and more scalable than the narrowly political or institutional contexts of interest to our social science colleagues. One form of anthropological transitology, if one wanted to call it that, derives from the study of ritual or the ritual process, as it's sometimes called. Anthropologists observed that all transitions followed a common form, a departure from a state of normativity into a state of indeterminacy within which those undergoing the transition can engage in behavior considered aberrant in normal social circumstances. And finally, reintegration of the initiands, who are those going through the transformation into social normativity, but in a new social status. The most convenient way for most of us to grasp the ritual process is to think about a marriage ritual. The initiands, the bride and the groom, depart from the social condition of being single people, are brought together in a way that allows them to perform extraordinary acts not normally sanctioned as single individuals, such as kissing in public in the Euro-American tradition, and then they reintegrate into society as married individuals. The interesting part of the process is the middle phase after the initiands in the ritual have left their state of normativity, but before they've reintegrated in their transformed status. 
Anthropologists call this the liminal phase. The importance of liminality outside of narrowly conceived rites of passage has been recognized and a number of observations have been made about it. One is that when a group of people first enter into liminality, think of, for example, a university class going through matriculation or graduation, they bond together, social differences dissolve, class, gender, or ethnic differences, for example, may cease to have the same meanings as they do in normative society. A term for this sense of bonding is communitas, essentially just a slightly fancy way of saying community, but it's a special kind of community in which everyone becomes equal outside of normal social time and structure as they go through a passage that may be difficult, dramatic, or in some cases, even a trial of endurance. Another observation about liminality is that it's potentially dangerous. People released from their normal social obligations might do all sorts of alarming acts. To put it in terms of marriage, if there was no carefully controlled transition from singlehood to married status, youth and the grip of uncontrollable hormones might just fornicate wildly and all sorts of disasters would follow. Unplanned pregnancies or warfare between the Montagues and the Capulets or between Arab clans, if you want to think of it in those terms. And that's why ritual exists to control the unpredictable contingencies of liminality. As I mentioned a moment ago, the ritual process is highly scalable. Think of the ritual process in terms of a transition, for example, from childhood to adulthood. We have an intermediate social category called adolescence, the state of being in between childhood and adulthood. The nature of adolescence varies tremendously from one society to another. For us, it's quite prolonged. Everyone knows that teenagers are crazy. Since we tend not to recognize them as adults until sometime in their late teens or early 20s, we have institutions to control their unpredictability. Organized sports, the Boy Scouts, carefully chaperoned high school balls, debutantes, and other coming-of-age rituals. So what does the ritual process have to do with politics? Well, if you had been in Tahrir Square in late January 2011, you wouldn't be asking that question. The momentum of the moment when the Mubarak era had been left behind and everyone was energized and thought they loved each other despite their normal resentments of class, gender, or sectarian affiliation was communitas on a massive scale, further amplified by mass mediation. This is where the story becomes more complex and interesting. Understanding ritual through the ritual process is often seen within anthropology as a conservative approach to ritual because it tends to explain how things stay the same. The liminal phase of the process is full of contingency and possibility for change, but change is always rerouted back into normativity. But understanding a revolution through the ritual process compels a wider set of observations. Most importantly, ritual exists precisely for the purpose of controlling the dangers of liminality in transitions we know will happen. But are all transitions predictable? The answer is no. All sorts of events, large and small, compel transitions in which there is no conventionalized means for controlling what happens in the liminal phase, the period of fluidity between the collapse of one order and the reconstitution of a new order. In a revolution, there is no ritualized process to usher society back into the previous state of normativity. The Egyptian experience is instructive. After the initial burst of communitas following the fall of the Mubarak regime, no power could fully govern the country. 
the liminal phase became protracted and as far as anyone could judge, open-ended. As this happened, the effervescent communitas of the first moments of the revolution subsided, though all of the subsequent political mobilizations attempted to recreate it, inevitably with diminishing success. In such circumstances, liminality, intrinsically pregnant with possibilities, becomes limbo, an uncomfortable sensation of disorientation in which common points of political reference, such as the state, the police, or the government, no longer have the apparent solidity of the previous era. Limbo faintly resembles anomie, a Durkheimian concept that means normlessness. But in that case, the point was to explain such phenomena as suicide or social deviance. In the case of a transitional limbo, a more common possibility is for people to take sides. Old certainties may have been smashed, but a yearning for order is a fairly consistent impulse in all societies. And so the joyous bonding of communitas turned into a much more defensive gravitation toward allies and hopefully safety. And for those who initiated rebellions against the state, it was a chance to formulate a new kind of state and society. But in Egypt and in other Arab societies that experienced revolutionary upheaval starting in late 2010, the state of political limbo was protracted the transitional process was certainly grinding along in forms that were intelligible to political scientists. Elections, formation of political parties, constitution drafting, pressure to reform the police and the security forces, judicial reform, in fact, pressure to reform all institutions from the Ministry of Culture to the Department of Traffic Violations. But in a state of revolutionary limbo, the more crucial transitions had to do with legitimacy, which was very hard to establish when the previous anchors of political normalcy had been compromised. This proved to be the perfect environment in which political tricksters could flourish. Like the ritual process, tricksters are a universal form. To be clear, the universality of the form does not dictate what is expressed through it. Think of it this way. All languages have verbs and nouns, as well as consonants and vowels. Those are universal, but obviously what's expressed through them is not. So to say that the ritual process and the figure of the trickster are universal is not to say that having recognized this fact indicates that we necessarily understand what is being expressed through them. But it does mean that we have some basic principles through which to begin recognizing what is being expressed. A trickster is a figure at home in the margins, or you could say in liminality. Tricksters exist in folklore, mythology, modern literature, and popular culture. Coyote in Native American culture, Loki in Scandinavian mythology, Puck in Shakespeare, Tom Sawyer, Bart Simpson, they're all tricksters. As creatures of liminality, they have no commitment to the existential certainties of normative culture but they're skilled imitators who can make it up as they go. In anthropological and literary writing on tricksters, they're seen as having tremendous capacity for both creativity and destruction, which may sound paradoxical, but of course, one way to conceptualize creativity is precisely as the person or act that transcends boundaries and therefore breaks the mold. Prometheus was a trickster. He ended up strapped to a mountain with an eagle eating his liver, but the fire that he gave to human beings was a pretty good tool. We'd be fools to complain. Tricksters are sometimes too clever by half and end up disastrously like Prometheus. And sometimes they're the ones who trick others. 
Tricksters in politics is a new idea about a phenomenon that has occurred throughout history. Yet you might say its time has come now more than ever. Trickster politicians are continually in our midst. Some familiar examples are Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, and very obviously Donald Trump. In a world dominated by a liberal internationalist order and underpinned by slavish adherence to free market ideology, political tricksters in our age seem to be almost entirely far-right populists. But if trickster politics is always a possibility, then the question arises as to why tricksters are sometimes listened to and become important and not at other times. Extreme crisis is an obvious factor. Consider Hitler, for example. His beer hall putsch in 1923 was derided as the work of a lunatic more suited to the comic opera than to serious politics. His demagogic skill and the violence of his ideas were recognized by some, but the initial response to him was often laughter. Without the economic collapse of the Weimar Republic and resentment at the harsh terms imposed on Germany after the First World War, he might well have remained a joke. In Egypt, by the end of 2011, one of the harbingers of the coup that brought Abdel Fattah Sisi to power was an obscure minor politician and television journalist named Tofi Okasha, whose television talk show provided a forum for spewing bizarre conspiracy theories and praise for the military and security forces, including the still disgraced police. In Okasha's world, Egypt was under threat by a coalition of Freemasons, Hezbollah, Hamas, Israel, the European Union, and NATO. Why? Why do you need to ask? In Arkash's lunatic TV show, it was self-evident that any foreign power would want to destroy Egypt just because it was Egypt. Arkash's clownish monologues were mercilessly mocked in November and December 2011. But by the middle of 2012, he had become a symbolic lodestone for a growing backlash against the revolution, not just from shadowy dead-enders from the Mubarak era who were said to be financing a wide range of provocateurs, but from a broad swath of the middle and working class of Egyptians. Orkasha was widely and credibly said to be working as an agent of Egypt's military intelligence, which was run at the time by Abdel Fattah Sisi and Okasha's hyper-nationalistic conspiracy mongering was consistent with Sisi and the elite military cadres that he represented. Sisi comes across much more queerly in Arabic than he does in the relatively bland foreign journalistic coverage of his regime. One doesn't need to scratch very far below the surface of Sisi to find his inner Okasha. One recalls that Sisi was Donald Trump's favorite dictator, Perhaps one bullshitter, which is to say a trickster politician coming from outside the governing system and making it all up as he goes, recognizes another. It may seem broadly plausible that a true crisis, a collapsed economy, for example, or a revolution, can function as the midwife to forms of politics that might have been considered deviant in whatever passed for normal prior to the crisis. Or to put it differently, that a smashed political system creates a fluid situation that permits a point of entry for outsiders to enter and influence a reconstituted system. But this doesn't explain why our current moment in history is so replete with ascendant right-wing politicians, some of whom are intelligible as tricksters, or possibly many of the populists are tricksters, if what we mean by populist is someone who reaches over or outside 
of a functioning political system to appeal directly to the masses in ways that would have previously been dismissed as impossible or illegitimate. After every lecture that I've given on trickster politics, people have come up to me afterwards and said things like, this is a great way to think about Putin, or now I understand Erdogan better. That might be pushing the point too far. One might instead focus on the phenomenon of conspiracy theories and ask, why do they have so much traction these days? Conspiracy theories are trickster tales that don't necessarily have an identifiable author. The point is that suddenly they're being taken seriously. More than a dozen Republican House and Senate candidates in the 2020 election espoused belief in something called QAnon, a collection of conspiracy theories claiming that the world is run by a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Two of them won office. A recent poll indicated that 56% of the Republican Party in the United States believes in QAnon. But it would be a mistake to think that there's something new about these trickster tales that we call conspiracy theories. What is unusual is that they're being taken seriously and not in the context of an existential crisis like a revolution. Read Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics. It contextualizes Barry Goldwater's nomination as the Republican presidential candidate in 1964, first by tying him to the lunatic ravings of Joseph McCarthy, the Tuffy Okasha of American politics in the 1950s, and also to the John Birch Society. But then by tracing that line of paranoia all the way back to the anti-Masonic and anti-Jesuit movement in colonial America of the late 18th century, it was always there. But most of the time, it didn't matter that much. Now it attracts attention and adherence in American presidential elections. But beyond the US, it's strongly tied to an authoritarian impulse that is global. India, Turkey, Russia, Egypt, Hungary, Italy, Poland, the United Kingdom, and the United States, all nominally liberal electoral democracies that are either flirting with or plunging deeply into authoritarianism. Why? Why now? What I'm suggesting, and I know this is shameless speculation, but I promised my colleagues that I would do this so that my lecture wouldn't be exclusively about Egypt. Why is it that much of the world lives in a state of structured liminality, or more accurately, a form of unclosable liminality or limbo, an uncomfortable feeling of being stuck in a transition that never gets completed? One might also describe this as a structural crisis. Capitalism is the primary agent of this structured crisis. It always was predicated on economic expansion. To function, it requires new resources, higher productivity, inevitably shifting requirements for labor, and often pressure to reduce labor costs, new markets for surplus production. The effect of capitalism was always anti-stability. As Marx said in the Communist Manifesto, all that is solid melts into air in a capitalist order. This lack of solidity in the economic system was mitigated in two ways. First, through hegemony, which is often understood in everyday language as simply domination. But Marxists, most, most famously Gramsci, linked it to value systems which produce domination by consent of the dominated. It works by linking together two things which are incommensurate with each other. In this case, the inherent instability of an expansionist economic system linked to the most conservative social values, patrimonialism, patriotism, tradition, and religion, for example. 
properly functioning hegemony is actually characterized by a relative absence of overt violence applied by the state. One might argue that the hegemonic ideologies that underpin capitalism have been steadily breaking down, always in localized ways, but the global trend toward greater use of violence by states is unmistakable. As hegemonic illusions break down, populations that had seen themselves as protected from the instabilities of endless capitalist expansion experience increasing precarity. This has nothing to do with actual poverty, which varies tremendously from one country to another. Nobody can argue that rates of actual poverty in the US are comparable to poverty in Egypt or the Sudan or Morocco. The middle classes of all of these places may empirically be better off in some ways now than they were a generation ago. Yet all of them share the sense of precarity that comes with the implicit delinking of enduring values with an inherently unstable economic system. A second way of mitigating capitalism's inherent instabilities was through protection afforded by the state, protections nominally given to all citizens of the nation state, but in practice often given differentially to certain citizens and not to others. But since the 1970s, the protective umbrella of most states has steadily shrunk. Structural explanations of revolutions in the Arab world almost always focus on neoliberalism, liberal in the sense of a liberalized or privatized economy, and neo in the sense that prior to the 1970s, states were assumed to have a rightful role in organizing economies for the benefit of all citizens, rather than for the benefit of those who controlled the greatest proportion of capital and property. The withdrawal of protection to an increasing proportion of citizens within a given nation state feeds into the erosion of the hegemony that long made capitalism seem like a thing of solidity rather than a continual melting of material certainties into the air. Hence, we may feel plunged into revolutionary limbo even when no revolution has taken place. I won't elaborate at greater length. My goal is more to provoke questions than to give answers in such a brief presentation. But I do want to return to the Arab world, to crisis as a driver of authoritarianism that extends far beyond the region and which helps to de-exceptionalize the dictatorship syndrome that Alal Aswani proposes and to the pandemic that I see as a kind of half crisis which deepens the limbo in which we've all been living for some time. Our initial passage into lockdown last March was for me a transition accompanied at first by a sense of communitas I can only speak for myself. I know that for others, the experience was simply one of dread. For me, it was dreadful, and yet it wasn't. My neighborhood swiftly set up support networks for those who had to self-isolate. There was a sense of camaraderie of, we're all in this together, even though, of course, the actual experience was utterly different for those who could seamlessly move work online and others who had to continue staffing stores and other essential services or making deliveries. All sorts of people stayed in touch to see how I was doing. I did the same. Friends sent me clever jokes, memes, and videos of ballet dancers performing magical feats in their apartments, or at least in someone's palatial apartments. I baked banana bread and discovered that half the world was doing the same. Friends in Egypt sent me similar reports and lots more funny lockdown jokes and memes. I've heard that there were suspicions that Egypt's COVID statistics were artificially suppressed, and that there may have been and may still be lots more infections than the official statistics suggest. But other friends had friends who were doctors, and they reported that indeed there didn't seem to be that much COVID and there was no crisis in Egypt because of COVID. 
Still other friends, however, indicated that COVID lockdowns were exacerbating economic woes for unskilled workers who had no access to inflation-resistant hard currency. The government imprisoned doctors who questioned official statistics and continued imprisoning anyone else it suspected of anti-government thoughts. But there was nothing startlingly new in any of this. The same thing seemed to be happening approximately throughout the region. Iran has a COVID disaster to the east. To the north, Italy has a COVID disaster. But thus far, the Arab world has either dodged the COVID bullet or denied reality at an official level and done it collectively. Possibly the COVID crisis was too small to make much of a dent in a region that has been in far worse crises for years. These crises continue to sustain authoritarians in both illiberal democracies and in states that barely pretended that elections and parliaments mattered. In Europe and the US, the pattern was more reminiscent of Egypt's revolutionary experience. First came the exuberance of communitas, as I've already mentioned. Along with the communitas, I encountered many speculative thoughts about how to benefit from the crisis. With the streets suddenly devoid of traffic and the smog clearing, it was said to be an ideal time to reboot environmental initiatives. The pandemic would compel a fairer society like the Black Death had in the 14th century, killing so many people that labor became more valuable. COVID would increase the legitimacy of investment in public health care and tip society towards a form of participatory socialism. Or for Slavoj Žižek, it would give humanity the beneficial effect of communism. The pandemic would be Europe's Chernobyl, disaster that revealed the decadence of the system, thereby hastening its downfall. All such speculation was in the mold of, we can never go back to the way it was before. A phrase I heard often in Egypt in 2012, when the revolution was suffering one setback after another, post-revolutionary future that was far worse than the pre-revolution status quo had been. The effects of the pandemic in the UK and in Europe are still unfolding, but one thing is very clear. The beautiful bond of communitas is long gone. We entered into coronavirus limbo some time ago. Only a crisis, actual, actual or perceived, produces real change. It remains to be seen whether the magnitude of the crisis is sufficient for anyone to introduce a new reality that had been previously unthinkable way back in 2019 when we were in the throes of a structured limbo that was already fertile ground for all manner of populists and their trickster tales. That's it. That's my presentation. Thank you very much indeed, Walter. And thank you very much for, in less than half an hour, linking in what's been going on in, in Egypt with a much, not only political structures, but actually the current COVID situation we're going there. It's made me begin to think in, in different ways, particularly about liminality. I'm also struck, I remember you talking to me 15 years ago about this figure called Tawfiq Okasha, and I thought he was quite a colorful, quite a quirky figure and imagined he was just some sort of product of the sort of peripheries of Egyptian politics. But as you said, suddenly Tawfiq Okasha seems much more familiar 15 years on in, in all sorts of alarming ways. But thank you very much. 10 years, it's only been 10 years, Michael. Oh, you, you talked about him before the revolution. I remember you telling me well no, before the no, revolution. No, 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 I only discovered him in late 2011. Oh, right. I thought it was um, further back. The world that. discovered him. He was a nobody before then. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, my memory certainly, it, it played on me very early on before he even became known, but thank you. We have some time for questions. 
you have the opportunity to ask questions. If you notice in your, if you look on Zoom, there's a Q&A button on your, on the Zoom screen. If you have a, a question for Walter, please press that button and type it in. And my colleague Eugene Rogan is there collating those questions. And I see that we've got already have a number coming in. So we have about just over 20 minutes for questions before we have to finish at six o'clock sharp. So I'm going to hand over to Eugene for some questions for Walter. Eugene. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, it's kind of fun watching on Zoom as the crowd comes in to catch up with the Middle East Center. It's fun to see some of our alumni. And I'd like to reach out and say hi to Leonard Wood and Martin Bunton. I've noticed you guys have been regulars. It's good to have you back along with all of our other alumni. And, uh, and the questions are pouring in fast and furiously. I'm gonna start with our colleague Osama El-Azami and uh, Frank Damoni both converge around the relationship between tricksters and their audience, Walter. Osama's question is, does the view that figures like Trump or Sisi are tricksters risk us writing off the significant sectors of society that actually support these figures as naive or unintelligent? Can we think of our fellow citizens in more respectable terms? Or is there actually something to be said about the ancient Greek antipathy for democracy as ruled by the mob? Yet democratic accountability seems to be so obviously more desirable than the forms of dictatorship found in the Middle East at the moment. How might we aspire to a level-headed assessment of democracy while engendering for it the sort of enthusiasm necessary to help unseat dictatorship in the region? So bearing that in mind, just to bring Frank in, he asks, does the anarchic access to global audiences via social media enable trickster politicians? So a whole host of issues around the trickster and the citizen. Try and unpick that for us, Walter. I'll try. That's a very long question, first one. I, I certainly don't mean to write off audiences or people who follow tricksters or to suggest that they're stupid. What I'm trying to ask is why people pay attention to them at some times and other times they're always there, but people don't necessarily care about them. So I don't think it's a matter of, you know, of the audience somehow being gullible. I do think that social media plays a role in amplifying trickster politics, but I think that the, you know, the kind of structured insecurity that so many people feel is more important than the, than the sort of the technical aspects of the way social media kind of reproduce these trickster tales, which, which are conspiracy theories. And, it, and it's not just politicians who are playing the role of tricksters in this case. I think that the conspiracy theory itself also should be looked at as a, as a kind of product of a kind of trickster environment. And I want to, what I want to do is, is, is talk about a trickster environment and not talk about, you know, sort of evil clowns who are duping people. I don't see the problem as necessarily that people are being duped. And yet it's clear that people are, you know, more susceptible to listening to these kinds of narratives at certain times than they are at others. And so if you want to bring back democratic norms, then perhaps one of the things that has to happen is to stabilize the sense of limbo that people feel that they're living in. Thanks, Walter. Another attendee puts the question, how do you see the ambivalent group who neither opposes the regime nor supports it during the revolution and their attitudes towards political tricksters, maybe from the perspective of liminality? 
Well, in Egypt, they used to refer to the Hezbollah Kanaba and sort of the, you know, the broad middle class, which was at first grudgingly in favor of the revolution, or at least not openly against it. But as the period of instability went on and the feeling of insecurity grew, eventually solidified very much against it and ended up being in many cases, actually active supporters of the coup, not just passive supporters, but at least passive supporters. But yes, of course, there are people who just sit and watch. Um, and in any case, in, in any revolution and in any political system, it's always a minority of people who are activists who you know, are actually out there in the streets or are actively participating in political parties. I don't think there's any such thing as a fully mobilized society. So of course, there are always people who are somewhere in the middle waiting to see which way to go. Our student Frederica Brockhoven, obviously inspired by you talking about baking banana bread during lockdown, wanted to know whether you'd identified any tricksters during the pandemic in the Middle East and North Africa during the past few months. Has the pandemic given rise to a new trickster phenomenon? No, no as far as I can tell. I mean, the, the effect of the pandemic, to the, to the best of my knowledge, and it's not as if I've spent you know, extensive amounts of time traveling in the region, um, during the pandemic, you know, in fact, travel is quite difficult. And, you know, all I know is what friends are telling me via social media or email messages. And so, you know, the answer is, is no. I mean, in Egypt, which is, you know, the place that I follow more than other places, the effect of the pandemic seems to be quite small. You know, the notion that Egypt doesn't actually, you know, seem to be suffering a, a kind of hidden or unacknowledged COVID crisis seems to, to me to be fairly credible uh, because I keep hearing from people saying that, you know, oh, I have a friend who's a doctor. And I say, no, in fact, the hospitals are not being overwhelmed. And, you know, there aren't all sorts of people who are getting sick and dying from it that the state is trying to somehow cover up. There may be something going on somewhere else that I am unaware of, but, you know, in Egypt, I mean, you know, the problem is Egypt was already in a state of crisis. And as I was trying to hint at the end of my lecture, it may be that COVID is, is not a larger crisis than crises that were already happening in places like Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and the Sudan and Algeria. Another attendee clearly latching on to your, and wait for it, Michael, I'm going to pronounce this correctly, title Apocalimbo. Jealous? <laughs> wanted to know whether it's possible for citizens, particularly in countries in the Middle East, to become used to a state of limbo, if it's a new normal emerging in this convenient interim, or what is stopping it from becoming a new normal in this convenient interim? Well, I think it's possible for limbo to become durable. And, you know, I guess if it becomes durable, then people have to cope with it, which is what people have been doing. I mean, you know, in my view, the, you know, the reason that trickster politicians have become so successful and that conspiracy theories are threading is precisely that people are already living in a durable, structured sense of limbo. And for it to be limbo, I think people can never become fully comfortable in it, but they can become habituated to it. They can be living in a state in which they have no choice but to deal with it. You know, to, to a substantial extent, people all over the world have been doing just that. 
Your reflection on conspiracy theories segues very nicely to Richard Makepeace's question. He writes of his own recollections of Egypt in the 1990s, that there was always a deep attachment to conspiracy theories. The question was always, who benefits? And it led to bizarre answers, including at a time when the Mubarak regime was entirely secure. It seemed practically to a fixed characteristic of Egyptian society, along with political jokes and mis mistrust of El Ahram, the newspaper. So how is that to be explained? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily a liminal phenomenon. It can actually happen in times of fixity. Well, then there is a, a small literature on conspiracy theories in the Middle East. And one way that conspiracy theories, that the prevalence of conspiracy theories in the Arab world has been explained is that people who lack access to information are more likely to ask those kinds of questions of who benefits from something. And, and you know, that was the kind of argument that was being made in the early 1990s. But there's an article by John Anderson, an anthropologist at Catholic University in Washington, who wrote a you know, quite interesting article about conspiracy theory. And, and he, he was interested in social media. And in his view, social media suddenly made access to real information more possible for the Middle East than had been during the 1970s, 1980s. But of course, now we look at social media quite differently now. I mean, when, when the revolution happened in Egypt, social media was supposed to be a mighty engine of truth. You know, the lies of the regime could no longer be successful because people could get access to other information from outside. And so we had all of this nonsense about Facebook and Twitter revolutions. Of course, now it's, it's turned 180 degrees the other way. You know, it's all fake news. But, but again, I, I don't think people are as, as likely to believe in outlandish fake news when they feel that they're living in a solid, predictable world. And, I, and you know, I'll say again, I think people are, are susceptible precisely because they don't feel, they feel, you know, in some way precarious, not necessarily always in ways that they can express. The other thing I want to say about conspiracy theories in the Middle East is I don't think we should exoticize them as being strictly a feature of the Middle East. I was trying to make this point by bringing up Richard Hofstadter's book and you know, his kind of tour back in American history all the way to the 18th century suggests that conspiracy theories were a consistent part of American culture. But again, the question is, why are they important sometimes and not important at other times? And they are more important now than they, are, than they have been at any other time in history. And so, you know, that's what we need to be looking at. That's probably enough. Yeah, I know. And as you invoke QAnon, you know, I think the relevance and the pertinence of conspiracy theory as a more generalized phenomenon, as those who might have said this was a feature of Middle Eastern politics, a little humbled now and aware that our own societies are all too susceptible to that easier way of being manipulated. But let me go back to the questions, Walter. And audience, do recall, if you, if you don't wish to have your name said, then just mark anonymous. And I've got a number of people who've marked this as anonymous. If I see your name next to your question, then I will, I will mention you by name. So one of our other attendees has said one quality of trickster politicians would seem to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, to at least appear to be the underdog, an element of rebelliousness and a positionality, regardless of how tightly connected to hegemonic power they really are. Do you think being in power, as opposed to being part of the opposition, affects the way trickster politicians operate? Well, that's a good question. And as I, as I said earlier, I, I suspect that the phenomenon of tricksters in politics 
is actually older than we think. And I've said in, in other forms of this lecture that we should look at trickster politics as, as one form of authoritarianism, but not, of course, the point is not that all authoritarians need to be looked at as tricksters, but it may be a point of entering into political power, which then becomes consolidated and turns into something else, essentially becomes institutionalized. It's difficult for tricksters to institutionalize their politics, partly because they're making it up as they go. They're, they're outsiders. A trickster is an outsider, somebody who comes into the system who is not necessarily a creature of the system. But of course, it's entirely possible that a trickster could, could become would become the system, become institutionalized. And so, yes, I think that that's a, that's a good question. There could be an evolution of a person who begins as a trickster, introduces a kind of sea change in the nature of a political system that then becomes durable. Anthropologists call this schismogenesis. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the introduction of a new cultural form that had been considered monstrous before, which then becomes a permanent part of culture. We have a question now from Hannah Assisi, and Hannah, it's wonderful to see you. She starts the question so nicely. I'm going to read the whole thing, Walter. Walter, that was brilliant. Thank you. Eugene, it's absolutely wonderful to see you. Great to see you too, Hannah. And by the way, congratulations on the Malcolm Kerr. You've done us all proud. My question, says Hannah, how do you understand the relationship between liminality, a la Goffman or Van Gennep, grinding down initians to naked, newborn, or even a kind of ground zero you describe to Gramsci's inventory of traces, and essentially the idea that our personality and experience are always historical, always socially and historically constituted? A light question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Although I don't know very much about the, the Gramscian side of it, um, but, I, but I understand the point about, you know, the cultural archive or the political archive that people have isn't necessarily going to disappear. It's at the point of entry into liminality that the kind of leveling process happens. And if there isn't a conventionalized way of getting out of it, and the, and the condition of liminality becomes protracted, that's when people rediscover their archive. It may be, you know, an archive that is smashed to bits and sort of lying around in unfamiliar locations, but it doesn't, of course, it doesn't disappear. And what happens when people get in this extended period of liminality, which I referred to as, as limbo, limbo is different than the initial entry into liminality, is they start to take sides. I mean, that's what happened in the revolution. You take, you take sides by reaching back into stuff that you already knew. And the stuff that you already knew might be presented to you in a different form than it was before, but you still have a, you know, a degree of familiarity with it and you know, the ability to, to act in, in ways that can hopefully bring about an end to this intolerable state of limbo. One from um, our student Piotr Shulkas, who asks, who's more important or powerful, the government or the tricksters keeping the insanity or dysfunction of the government palatable to the population? Who needs who in this case? Yeah, that's also a good question. And, and the tricksters don't act on their own. I mean, they may act as kind of loose cannons. Delfeo Akasha was a loose cannon. I mean, he was working for military intelligence, but I think he was, they, they probably regarded him with some wariness because he was in it. He was so obviously in it for himself as well. And, and, and you know, this is the case with Donald Trump as well. But of course, they're coming into and are sometimes used by people in the background, you know, institutions, 
wealthy, powerful forces that are trying to ride the wave of tricksterism for their own ends. I mean, in the case of the United States, look at the Republican Party. You don't have to look any further. I mean, you know, this is a longstanding institution that initially said all of the things you would expect about Donald Trump was, a, oh my God, he's vulgar, horrible. You know, we, we can't possibly allow this man to become president. And yet, you know, they ended up using each other. And of course, most of the stuff that Donald Trump did when he was president, he could never possibly have dreamed up himself. It was the Republican Party. It was very solid institution with people who understood the way the government worked in ways that Donald Trump never could have, who took advantage of him. The trickster doesn't make institutions go away, that's for sure. That leads to Dalila Rodben's question concerning Egypt. How do you interpret the later dismissal of Taufik Okasha? Oh, well, good to hear from you, Dalila. It's been a while. But, uh, well, it's because, I mean, in my view, it's because Sisi is a trickster, and he couldn't have another trickster around on the scene making trouble for him. My understanding of Sisi is that he also is a kind of trickster politician. And he may be a good example of a trickster politician who manages to become durable. He's still there and perhaps developing alliances and abilities to actually run the government in ways that it hadn't been running before. But, but that would be my answer to your question, is that uh, Sisi was a bigger trickster than Okasha. And uh, when the time came, they threw him overboard. Samir Karanshawi is weighing in with a couple of questions with regards to you, Walter. He says, while I'm weary of the very broad sweep of the comparison of different waves of populist tricksters, doesn't a history of authoritarianism make a difference? Think of Egypt and Turkey and also of Russia. Okay, I'm not sure I understand the question. It was good to hear from you, Samir. So does a history of authoritarianism make a difference in the ways in which populist or tricksters emerge onto the historical stage? Well, I mean, authoritarianism is one kind of, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, you can't say that every authoritarian is a trickster. And so you could very easily have an authoritarian system, which of course Egypt had throughout its post-colonial history, which could be taken over and taken in different directions by a trickster politician coming into an already existing authoritarian system and introducing ways of operating that would have been considered deviant before, but possibly those becoming um, durable as well. We have time for one last question, if I can get a brief answer from you, and then we'll hand over to Michael to bring the evening to a close. But the last question goes to Nate George who thanks you for a great talk. It says, Walter, you make clear the relationship between structural crises and tricksters, which is very helpful. But do you have any thoughts about the relationship between tricksters and counter-revolutionary politics? One thing that's clear about those you mentioned is that all these figures explicitly advocated against a perhaps more rational revolutionary alternative. So is there a link to be drawn between tricksters and counter-revolutionary politics? Well, I would say it's a link between tricksters and the far right. I mean, when I've given lectures on this in the past, many people have said, well, could you have a left-wing trickster? And my answer is, in theory, yes. But in, in the current world that we live in, no. There's no such thing as a trickster of the left that I know of. 
which doesn't mean that there never has been or that there never could be. But if a revolution begins, I mean, if, if what you mean by revolution is a revolution that begins with progressive intents coming from the left, basically, which I think most revolutions more or less are, then naturally the opposition to them, the counter-revolution is going to be a backlash from the right. But I think that looking over at the, sort of the, the larger and the longer trickster scape, these are creatures of the right at this particular moment in history. I think it's entirely possible that they're learning from each other. I mean, of course they had, they, you know, all of the authoritarian potential tricksters in the world had Donald Trump for four years to, to look at and you know, get inspiration and perhaps learn some, some new ways to operate in their own political terrain. Revolutionaries do the same thing. I mean, you know, they, they learn from each other. From what I've heard about the situation in Algeria from Michael, they had their eye on Egypt and were determined to not make the same kinds of mistakes that had been made in the Egyptian revolution. I think I've, I've heard the same things about the Sudan, although I don't know if it's been quite as successful. So everybody who's involved in politics naturally always has their eyes on other people's political experiences and are trying to learn from them. Thank you, Walter. Unfortunately, our hour is now up, and I apologize to those people who still wanted to ask questions. There was a lot of interest in this topic. But before I, uh, I send you out to the liminarity that is the uh, COVID weekend in lockdown, I, I just wanted to thank Walter again for a wonderful lecture that's taken us from Egypt to Trump to COVID to banana bread in less than an hour. Thank you very much for some fascinating observations. It's made me think about a lot of different things in a connected way. So thank you very much, Walter. And I thank you very much to all of you who attended. And I invite you to join us all next weekend at five o'clock on Friday for the next in the series of our lecture. Thank you very much and good night and have a lovely weekend. Thanks to everyone.